Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 250 of Yogaland 250. That just feels like a milestone, and I feel as though uh, some fireworks should shoot out of your device or something to show you my excitement. But that's not going to happen. One thing that is going to happen that's new about the podcast is that you can now watch the podcast on YouTube. So this is the first interview that I have recorded, both the audio and the video. So you can, of course, continue to listen to it as you always do. Or if you are a YouTuber, a YouTube person, you can go watch the interview as well. And you probably know by now that you can watch Jason's podcasts, Yoga Teacher's Companion on YouTube. So I thought if he can do it, I can do it too. Before I get to the interview, I would like to encourage you to sign up for our newsletter if you have not yet. We just have so much new content happening this year that I want to make sure you don't miss it. So if you are not on our newsletter, go jump on there at jasonyoga.com slash newsletter, and we will notify you when we've got new content. And we'll also notify you when we have new programs available, if you would like to take part in those. And in that same vein, Jason has a webinar he's doing this Wednesday, January 12th, 2022. And it is a behind the scenes peek at his upcoming 500 hour teacher training. So it's three modules of 100 hours each. And this is the online only training that he's doing this year. You can take one module, you can take all three modules. Either way, if you're interested in continuing your teacher training and you want to know more, go sign up for this webinar at jasonyoga.com slash webinar. And if you can't attend the webinar, we will send you a replay. And if you are listening to this podcast after January 12th and you feel like, oh, darn, I missed it. I will post the webinar replay up on the registration page for the program. So you can go find it at jasonyoga.com slash 500 hour. Okay, on to today's interview. As I mentioned in the podcast last week, I'm just so excited to have a great roster of people that I'm speaking to this season. And my first guest is Rima Datta. Rima is a yoga teacher based in Taos, New Mexico. She grew up in a family of yogis and has been teaching yoga and Ayurveda since 2002, so for about 20 years. She has a system called Yatri, and she focuses a lot on emotional well-being, and she talks about that in the podcast, so you can learn more about that there. I found Rima when she published an essay recently in Elephant Journal, and the essay is called yoga and cultural appropriation and how we can heal the world with kindness. The essay is so eloquent and succinct that I just knew immediately that I wanted to talk to her. I wanted to find out what prompted her to write it. And I wanted to learn more about her and her views of cultural appropriation. So that's what we focus on in this interview. We get to know Rima better and her background and then kind of what led her to write this essay and what points she's trying to get across. So I hope you enjoy it and you learn something and it just opens up more discussion. 
Okay, Rima. Well, I'm so happy to have you here today on my very first Yoga Land video podcast. So people can watch us as well as listen to us. So I would love to just start with your yoga story and, and how you started doing yoga. Sure. I don't know. I don't know where it starts. Um, I was born into a family of yogis. So my mom was literally singing mantra when I was in her womb. So Wow, yeah. Um, that's her favorite pastime. Like growing up, she sang mantra all the time while cooking, cleaning, doing stuff around the house, driving. So I've been hearing it my whole life. And I've just been lucky. I've been surrounded by so many aspects of yoga always. Um, my mom and grandmothers were always cooking and they cook Ayurvedic food. So I grew up with the spices and, yeah, you know, just learned by spending time in the kitchen with them. Mm-hmm. And, but, and and also just rituals, you know, yoga rituals have been a part of our daily life every morning, mm-hmm. evening, singing and praying. And so it's baked I, into your family culture. Oh, yeah. Like. Yeah, yeah. One of my biggest influences is also my grandfather. Uh, he had a passion for yoga philosophy. So he actually used to lecture on the Gita and the Vedas and the Upanishads all over India and also East wow. Africa and even in the States here. So I grew up, you know, he wrote su- several books on yoga philosophy too. And he just loved to talk about it. Like it was a yeah. passion of his. So I have so many memories just sitting with him and talking philosophy and life, you know. Yeah, he was a he was a really inspiring figure to me and, and to many people. You know, he he was a yogi and he had a practice. Like every morning he got up and did pranayama and asana and meditation and read scriptures. But the rest of the day, towards the end of his life, after he retired, the rest of his day he would spend in service. So um, I mentioned this um, yoga retreat center he has in, uh, he had in a village in India. And it was a retreat center, but it was also a community center. Mm-hmm. And he did projects all over the village to, to help the people, building schools, hospitals. So he was very much a karma yogi mm-hmm. and had his own physical practice too. But his whole philosophy was like, let's do these practices so we have more energy to give. Mm. He, mm-hmm. His life was an example of that. So that's so, so beautiful. We're very influential, and um, my parents too. Mm-hmm. When did you did you ever go through any rebellion? I mean, a lot of kids are raised with a certain culture and maybe push against it for a little little while. Or did it always feel and also? When did you know you were going to make it your life's work? Yeah, I, uh, there's a lot in there. I definitely went through my rebellious stage. And actually, I was pretty, I was very shy when I was little. And my my mom is such a beautiful singer. And so we, we would actually have kirtans at our house and satsangs at our house, gatherings, where we sang together and talked philosophy and I, for years, I never sang because my, my mom was usually the one leading the mantras and kirtan. And so I would just kind of be in awe of her and just listen. And then, like, not till really adulthood did I start to sing and 
participate more. And um, I think when I was younger, I was mostly observing. You know, it's bizarre because, you know, my parents immigrated to the United States from India with nothing. You know, they, they built their life from nothing here and worked really hard to send me and my brother to college and get a good education, which we did. And I actually, after I went to college in upstate New York, and like most of my graduating class moved to New York City. Mm -hmm. I ended up living in New York City off and on for about 10 years. And I majored in international affairs, focused on South Asia and gender, and got a job at the United Nations. So I worked at the UN for many years in, Mm -hmm. in the city, mostly in New York City. And that was my career. You know, I was building my career and creating my life there. And then 9-11 happened. And that really, that's what changed my life, actually. Um, And from my family's point of view, it was a moment of rebellion because I had decided after 9-11 to quit my job and turn to yoga, like completely. Um, I went back to India, spent time with my grandparents and just decided I wanted to dedicate my life to yoga and to healing and that we need to change within ourselves. Like all the stuff going on in the world is not working. Mm-hmm. And even though I, I even have a master's in international affairs and spent so much time and energy and money <laughs> building that career, you know? And so my family was actually very upset with me they were like, you cannot leave this for yoga. Like, are you kidding me? Like, Chidana was actually crazy. And they were very upset with me. And they were like, we've worked so hard to give you this life. And you have so many opportunities. Like, yoga is just something we do on the side. It's not a career, you know, that's like so insane, (laughs) you know. But I just, I just had this feeling and this drive. And Part of that was fueled because when I worked at the UN in the evenings in New York City, I had started to go to yoga studios, and which I had never done. Like I only experienced yoga at home. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the studios, I loved it. You know, part of me loved the community and I, I love asana. So I love movement. So I thoroughly enjoyed the studio experience, but I quickly started to realize that there's so much not being shared in these studios. Mm-hmm. There's so many aspects of yoga that are missing here. Yeah. I, and I became friends with the yoga teachers. And, you know, and I, I realized that I, I can do this, you know, and I can bring more to the table. And then 9-11. So there was multiple things going Layers. on within yeah. myself. But I just, you know, made a drastic change in my life. At wow. Wow. Tell me a little bit about, you know, I I know you through your online presence. We haven't met face to face. I haven't had a chance to study with you or anything like that. So you have such a lovely way about of communicating. And I think you, you know, you seem to feel really comfortable communicating authentically on social media. So I feel like I have a sense of kind of how you focus your teaching now, but I'd love to hear from you. What is your approach to teaching yoga these days? You know, it's changed over the years, but these days and over the past five, six years, I've really focused on the emotional aspect of Mm -hmm. our being and 
you know, I, I went through some hard times about seven years ago. I, I had a hard time in my life and was overcome with a lot of emotions like anger and anxiety and jealousy and sadness. And, and I realized at that time that, you know, it was kind of like the hardest chapter of my life. And I actually, I couldn't get a hold of my mind. Like it was really consumed with these emotions and they were draining my energy. And I, I was like, just having a hard time getting control of my mind. And it was interesting because this was about seven years ago. And during that exact same time, there were a couple of my very close friends who are also yogis and have a really strong practice. And and it was like different things were happening in our lives, but similar in the sense that we were going through really tough things. And... Um, having a hard time, you know, again, just like getting a hold of the mind, struggling through these emotions. And, yeah. And I actually like stopped, I decided to stop teaching yoga, just take a pause. Because I, I was like, something is just missing, like something's mm -hmm. not quite right here. Like, I'm, a, I, I, I'm as a yogi, I should be able to work through my thoughts and emotions and get through better. So I, I took a pause and my daughter was very young at that time. She was only three. Mm -hmm. I had just gone through a separation with her father. So I actually decided to move into my parents' home and just take their support, lean on them for a little while. You know, at that age, our kids start to go to school, which is like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so she started to go to preschool and kindergarten and I actually had a few hours yeah. And I was with my parents. So I during those hours that she was at school, I just let myself go back to the scriptures and like really study them and um and 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 practice, you know, like deeply. It was almost like a retreat I put myself into. Yeah. At least those hours she was in school. And and it was so fascinating to me because I think a lot of us, you know, with scriptural books, like we read them again and again, and every time we learn something new because there's so Amazing. there's so much depth to them, yeah. you know. And so these same books, like the Gita, the Upanishads, I had been exposed to since a child, you know. And but it, I felt like it was the first time I was reading them from like the eyes of a mother and a woman and just like a more mature person you know? mm. and it just a lot of teachings came just like lit up for me in a way that was different than they ever had and one of those things was just that the emphasis that these scriptures have on our emotions and our thought patterns and really how to to see them to recognize them and then to let ourselves be with them, like go to the roots of them and all of these beautiful teachings and techniques to work through anger and attachment and anxiety and fear. And so I started to take myself through these practices and I started to make little like sequences, like a sequence for anger, a sequence for attachment and mm. Each sequence had like a mantra and a meditation and visualization and some movement. Honestly, it took three years, but I mm. got myself to the other side, you know. And then I slowly started to teach workshops again and 
you know, my daughter was like around five or six, I started to travel just like weekend workshops here and there. And so I started to teach these sequences and they were so well received. And like so many people were just, I witnessed people's healings, you know, I witnessed mm. my own, but then I could see it in others. And so I, I just decided to create this program and I call it Yatri Yoga for Emotional Healing. But that's basically what it is. We, so in, in the scriptures, they explain this word klesha, which you probably have heard. Klesha means a mind poison or a destructive emotion. And the major kleshas are attachment, anger, fear, isolation, depression, anxiety, shame. So I basically, I, and I, I was experiencing all of these kleshas. <laughs> so I had made a sequence for each one. Mm -hmm. I started teaching them and I just called it Yatri. Yatri means journey, you know, someone who's on a sacred journey. So, mm -hmm. so then I, I started teaching, I, I turned it into a teacher training. And so I, all of our teacher trainees, we call ourselves Yatris. Like oh my gosh. I together. love that you do a teacher training. That's so wonderful. Yeah. Because yeah. I just, I don't want to, I don't interrupt, but I just, mm -hmm. I resonate so much with everything that you're saying, like, I definitely feel like my continued connection to yoga is the emotional aspect. And mm -hmm. so I love that you put this all together in this, in your system. That sounds amazing. Yeah, it's been, it's been so deeply nourishing. You know, I mean, I went through such a hard time. But of course, you know, when we look back, we see why we go through the things we go through because I probably wouldn't have done any of this if not, right. you know, so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting. I have to say this to my daughter sometimes because she's very sensitive and I have to say, it's not that I, it's not that I would wish suffering upon anyone. Right. Yeah. But when you do go through something and you learn from it, you can then help others through it and you can hold the space for others. And isn't it amazing? Like, I'm sure you just get this satisfaction all the time of just, when you present your sequences or your program and you're just those tech, the tools and the techniques, and then your ability to hold the space for people is really healing. So I can just feel that from you, just like sitting and talking to you that you have that ability. And that's just amazing. Not everyone has that. That's unique to you. And that's just, that's so beautiful. Sometimes, honestly, I feel selfish because I teach and I'm like, am I doing this more for myself or for them? Because I get, as you know, we get so much out of teaching. So much. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and especially teaching this material, every time I share it, I just heal on a more deep, mm. deeper level, you know? So it Absolutely. I feel selfish. <laughs> but I, I share that with my teacher trainees that, you know, this is... You know, one of my um, dear friends and colleagues, who's also like a teacher to me, he said once, we teach best what we need to learn the most. Mm. And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So mm -hmm. I know. And when you teach it, for me, it's like writing about it or, or any kind of creating any kind of content about it. And the more I repeat it and teach it and write it, the more I remember it for myself, you know, like you said, it's that selfish. It's like, I repeat it so that I can live it. I repeat it so that I can, I can remember it or call upon it when I'm stressed or when I, you know, when I'm in a challenging place, because 
that's life, you know, we're always going to go through those waves. So having it like really embedded, it's just super healing, like you said. Yeah. So I found you through an article that you recently wrote for Elephant Journal. You know, just the the top sort of sub headline is yoga has been misunderstood and misrepresented. We can improve this while carrying compassion, love and respect for everyone. And I just think it's a, a beautifully written essay and it was helpful to read as let's face it, I'm a white woman. <laughs> I'm a middle-aged white woman. <laughs> I am well aware that there, you know, there have been problems with appropriation of in yoga for a while. I know I personally feel stuck about kind of how to help, what to do. I know a lot of my listeners feel that way. And I, I thought your essay was like a beautiful invitation to have a discussion about it. And so I'd love to know what prompted you to, to write the piece. So many things, honestly. I've been struggling, you know, the last two years mostly with seeing some of the popular narratives that have been going on in, in, in the mainstream media. And, and, I, and I see some of it trickling into yoga. I felt like I was just like silently observing for a while. And then as I saw certain thoughts trickle into yoga, now even into our children's education, I, I feel like it's mm-hmm. hard. I, I, like I can't stay silent anymore. Uh, and that's what triggered it. Just, um, you know, I feel like, of course, cultural appropriation is an issue, as I stated, and as is racism and sexism and all of these, you know, forms of oppression. And it's so important for us to talk about it and help people to become aware of injustice and inequalities. And I personally feel like the pendulum has just swung a little too far. Mm. And to the point where some of the dialogue I find is damaging and divisive and just like too much sensitivity, you know, too Mm. much like, oh my God, I have to walk around eggshells around Rima and make sure to not... (laughs) say something wrong. And I like, I don't want that. Like, I, I just, I want people to be relaxed and yeah. for us to enjoy each other's cultures. And then like some of the, you know, to me, yoga is a mindset. You know, I used to think of it as a lifestyle and I still do, but more than anything, I feel like it's a mindset. And hmm. as a yogi, we are in touch with our capacity and our strength and our purity and you know, if, if there's anything I've learned in life, it's that I have the capacity to move through the obstacles in front of me, mm. you know, and that's what we teach in yoga, that we can, and we are the only ones who can really make our lives great. You know, mm-hmm. Of course, it's important to have support and teachers and community, and I think that's more important than ever. But ultimately, it's like, I'm not going to wait for someone out there to do something differently to live my life well, you know. And some of these um, mindsets of like victimhood or shame are very disturbing to me because I feel like they are honestly like poisons, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's like I can sit here and come up with a hundred ways the world is against me and I can be right. But then what? It's like we push through. 
You know, like what's the value of being a victim mm-hmm. or, or to spread that? I mean, to our kids, that's like, to me, unacceptable. I, I see these things and I've just been witnessing them. And it's that's what prompted me to write that, that, you know, like, let's talk about inequalities. Let's work on these issues, but not in a way that we're shaming and blaming and calling each other this and that and feeling like a victim. And, you know, I don't feel like that's a good approach at all. Yeah. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about the concern of feelings of victimhood being passed on to children. Like I, you know, I hadn't considered that. That's an interesting thing just to like absorb. And I understand because I'm like you, like, I have never been so strong as when I became a mother. Like I used to struggle with boundaries. I like, you know, emotionally it was a hot mess for many years, you know, all these things, but like, no one is going to F with my kid. Like no one's going to, no one's going to like, no, that's not going to happen. Like I, so that's, that's interesting. And, And the other thing that just came up for me as you were talking is I can't remember the name of the professor, but he is a black professor. He's, and, and like he's maybe my age or a bit older. And one of the things that he points out that he finds troubling about the pendulum swinging, right? Like he said, maybe toward like almost like an over overcorrection is he, he says like, I don't want to be infantilized. And that that's like a, to me, a very valuable perspective and kind of maybe what you're talking about, like you're a perfectly capable person. You have tons of resources. Your culture has tons of resources. You're, you know, and so it's like this, it's such a strange place to be, right? Where we want to make systemic changes. Like there are problems with, with systems. There are always problems with systems. And so it's important to like talk about them and be honest about them and try to come up with solutions. But then when it, it gets to the point of perhaps victimhood, then you're left in this position of being infantilized and, and, and like the perception of being powerless. And that's not, that's not what you want either. Yeah. Yeah. It feels almost like the last two years, some of the narratives, it's like the world wants me to be scared because I'm a woman and I'm brown and Uh it's like the world is against me. And I'm, that's not how I feel. You know, it's like, I've been feeling a lot of like lack of resonance with some of the mainstream narratives. And yeah, I mean, talking, like getting to our children, it's like, I hear you. I feel like this mama bear is going to like come out, you know, and and say no way. Like no one can tell my daughter that she's some victim Mm -hmm. or that I will not let that happen. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just so bizarre because my parents and my grandparents experienced so much more oppression than I ever have. You know, my grandparents lived through poverty in in India and British colonialism in India. And my parents came to this country with nothing. And and I think they faced more racism than I have, you know, being the next generation here. And my parents and grandparents, they never perceived themselves as a victim. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just like, okay, they created beautiful and meaningful and joyful lives for themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I witnessed that. And so that's why it's especially strange to hear these narratives. Mm Because it's like, wait a second, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who said we're a 
perfect, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. why is someone creating a narrative about me and my people? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a little bizarre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then to see it trickle into yoga is more bizarre to me because such a huge part of yoga is, like I mentioned, teaching us our capacity and that, you know, we can, we can overcome. And, and whatever challenges in front of me, I was born to overcome and I was born to face it. And just like I saw my parents' strength, you know, my daughter sees mine. And mm. as you know, like as an entrepreneur, we go through challenges, like endless challenges every day. And so she sees me struggle and she sees me overcome my struggles. And so she sees my strength, you know, so for someone to even open a dialogue that maybe we're going to teach brown and black children that they're oppressed. No, no mm -hmm. way. I, I mm -hmm. just, you know, I, I just feel like that's a mindset that's the opposite of yoga and that's uh, just damaging, you know? Yeah. 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 One of the things that really leapt out at me in what you wrote was, well, first of all, I just think overall what just stood out to me was you punctuating the need for compassion and understanding and patience and kindness and that those are principles that yoga teaches. And I thought that was just very, very powerful. And like you said, in, in the course of narratives can be easily forgotten. The other part that really jumped out at me was you said, Years ago, I brought 23 Western yoga practitioners to my grandfather's yoga retreat center in Kaknar, a tribal village in North India. My family and the villagers embraced everyone with open arms. They didn't reprimand anyone for mispronouncing Sanskrit terms or for focusing on asana or for having yoga businesses. So that just says so much. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little more, that experience. Yeah, I mean... You know, my, my grandparents and my family, my grandparents have all passed now, but they were like so open-minded and loving. And, you know, my grandfather, he traveled the world. He, he actually also used to work for the United Nations before he retired and moved back to India permanently. But he was always fascinated with other cultures and traditions and just a very worldly person, you know, and, and so there was um, just a lot of humility, you know, that first of all, if like 23 Westerners, they were mostly European and a couple Americans, if they're interested in coming to our village in India, like, wow, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming and sharing yourselves with us, you know, and they were all such beautiful, bright people. <laughs> It's like, of course, we just loved each other. I feel like these days where everything, we're doing everything behind a screen. It's like we lose our humanity. Yeah. You know, we just like yeah. write some nasty message to someone on, we forget that they're a human being. Yeah. With like their own struggles and their own lives and, you know, and their own beauty and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, bringing that group to my grandfather's village it was such a beautiful experience for all of us. And so, yeah, just like wide open, welcoming arms. And 
I mean, in the big picture, like who cares if you're mispronouncing Sanskrit a little bit? Like it doesn't matter. It's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and we right. recognize like if I was to go to Spain and start speaking Spanish, mm-hmm. it would not be perfect. You know? Right. So right, why right. do I give a hard time to people? It doesn't make any right. sense to me. And it's like we are a melting pot. You know, I, I the years when my family moved back to the United States, I was 10 years old. And at that time, I fell in love with the piano. And it was like a huge part of my life. And to, to this day, one of my favorite things to do is sit at a piano and play Beethoven and Bach mm. and Rachmaninoff and Chopin. Mm. And it's like, yeah, that that's what I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, why is that okay for me? And I'm giving, mm-hmm. and I give people a hard time about, mm-hmm. you know, enjoying aspects of Indian culture. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a bit strange, and I say that also, you know, saying that yes, cultural appropriation is an issue, and let's work on it. But it's like we can leave out the anger and shaming and blaming when we remember. Mm-hmm that we're human beings and we're here to enjoy each other. We're here to enjoy each other's whatever we have to offer each other. Yeah. And the way we take something on might not be perfect, but that's okay. Yeah. I mean, you said so many important things. I think we're really fortunate to live in a world where we do get to share cultures. I feel so fortunate that I learned yoga. I, I was actually thinking about it in the shower the other day, getting kind of emotional, like, I don't know where I would be if I didn't discover yoga in my 20s because nothing else felt helpful to me. Like I I just, I never fit in with my religion of origin. I didn't actually really exactly fit in with my community of origin. And yeah, it just, it just like spoke to me intellectually. It helped me in my body. It helped my nervous system. It helped my heart. Like, and so I just feel incredibly fortunate that we have this globalist world. I think you really hit on something, which is that the the downside to, to being so connected is can we handle it right through our through the the through social media and through the abundance of media that we're bombarded with all the time? Like, can we, how do we, I think we're all trying to figure out how to manage it so that it's not like we're in our cars separate from each other, but on the road, road raging when someone does something that we don't like, how do we handle this new level of connection? And this, it's just so much. There's actually a podcast that uh, I listened to pod save America. And one of the hosts, his name is John Favreau. And he just started like, I think it's every Friday. He started a special segment called offline and it's basically talking to other people and experts about this topic of like, how do we manage being in this much contact with people, but behind a screen? How do we, how do we manage this? Because it's, it is, it does get very rageful and you do tend to get the polar extreme views. So it's, it's, I was really grateful when I read your essay as well, because I felt like I mean, I'm sure it took a lot of courage, actually, because it's a it is speaking out against a a, a popular narrative right now. Yeah. And you tend to just hear the two polar extremes 
on social media. I was just talking to a friend about this last night. He's like, everybody, you know, in yoga seems to want to just do handstands. So I just think like, should I just be teaching handstands? And I'm like, but you're just seeing the people who are posting in the extremes, like super turbocharged asana or super guilt induced, you know, (laughs) kind of like shaming. There's lots of people in the middle who just aren't saying anything because they just want to have reasonable conversations offline with their friends or, you know. So that's the other thing that's difficult about it is that it it seems to highlight whether it's algorithms or just what we're drawn to or whatever it is, it seems to highlight sort of extremist views. And then so many of our points of view in the middle get lost. So I appreciate you speaking up. And I wonder how has it been for you since you published it? Were you nervous? Did you have, have what's the response been? I was nervous to, to post that, uh, but there was, I was, I've been surprised because I don't know what people are saying, you know, not to my face, but the people who have approached me have all been very grateful. You know, I acknowledge that that was probably hard to write and post and just, um, just a lot of gratitude. So I feel inspired actually to, to share more, you know, because I have been holding back and Again, as as some of these ideologies trickle into schools and to our children, I feel like I, I need to speak up more. Mm-hmm. You know, how mm-hmm. these things don't resonate with me, and I, I think I do represent other people. I think a lot other people are feeling similar. You know, yeah. but it is scary to speak out, and you know, we live in such a cancel culture. Mm-hmm. My little business supports. <laughs> me and my daughter so you mm-hmm, know, it's mm-hmm. scary. but I actually it's like it feels so good to to share my truth and I even not to, to jump to this but I I've had that thought like I get it how people will even die to share their truth because it feels mm-hmm. when you I do it feels so good and so important mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. right you know Good for you. I feel inspired. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. You did right in the the beginning, like there are problems with cultural appropriation. And so I I just would love to know in like a very sincere way, what are some of the problems that you see and, and what can those of us who are practicing yoga in the West, what can we do to be more aware and honor yoga in the way that you feel is appropriate? It's such a layered question because there are issues and I'll go into it in a second, but I feel like before I do, I want to give a bigger picture from of my personal experience, which is that I really appreciate, you know, all the, the yogis around the world who have been drawn to this practice. And I don't know everybody, but... I know a lot of yogis scattered throughout the world and and they've become my friends and my colleagues and I, I see the devotion and the dedication and the sincerity and the beauty of so many people's practices. And I yeah, I have a lot of gratitude and appreciation for the yogis I've met and practiced with and learned with. And, um, and who have hosted me, you know, before COVID and even before I had a child, 
I, I traveled a lot and taught yoga like all over Europe and Asia and North America. And I stayed in the homes of, you know, like my hosts opened their homes to me mm-hmm. and gave me their bedrooms. And I sat and ate breakfasts and lunches and dinners with them and their family. And I have to say, I have been always treated with respect mm-hmm. and kindness and generosity. And and that's like 99% of my experience. Mm-hmm. It's just like beautiful exchanges and so, yeah, once in a while, I'm just like, oh, that's, you know, <laughs> I see something yeah. that's a little offensive, but that's, you know, just to put it in perspective, it's, it's, it's it happens now and then. And mm. so I'll give some examples. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> so the, I'll, the little, like one thing that, it, that I, it feels offensive to me, and I know I speak for other Indians is you know, for us, this practice, it's so sacred and it's almost like a prayer, you know, and our spaces where we practice yoga are, are like temples. And so, you know, one thing that has, it's like hurts is when I see teachers like curse around mm. yoga, like while they're mm. teaching, like effing this or that, or even mm. I've seen it in writing, like when COVID started, there was something going around that said, stay the F-U-C-K at home, mm. at home, you know, oh, okay. with mm-hmm. an ohm symbol, like, oh, oh. that hurts, you know? Yeah. Like, so yeah. That's like, that's offensive, you know, to, to see or to hear curse words around something that we feel is so sacred and that is mm-hmm. so sacred to us. Mm-hmm. That's, and I, I get it that it's, part of the culture these days to, you know, use curse words a lot. <laughs> that seems to just be a trend. But yeah, that's it doesn't like, sit right. Mm-hmm. That's painful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's things like that. Um, but what I also realize, you know, even if I see a little something at a yoga studio that the statue could be here instead of on the floor, I, I, it doesn't like upset me hugely because what I've noticed is if I just talk to the studio owner and say, Hey, what do you think about putting this here? So it's not close to our feet. The studio owner will be like, sure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And it's Mm -hmm. no big deal. And we go on Mm -hmm. with our lives, you know, Mm -hmm. so I don't feel like I need to hang on to those kinds of things. So those are like some, you know, little things, the bigger picture, what I see and I feel like we can all work on is, you know, how yoga has, it's it's basically reduced to a physical practice, you know, mm-hmm. for the most part mm-hmm. in the Western world. And, you know, when, when I went back and read the scriptures again a few years ago, now it's like so obvious <laughs> that like all of those thousands and thousands of pages, it's really about one thing, and that is the mind. You know, so t- I think what we can do as um, anyone who's a leader in the yoga world, whether it's teaching or running a business, is just to take the time to read the the scriptures and mm. you know, and yeah, the Vedas and the Upanishads. It's not easy reading, but like the Gita. The Gita is not too hard to read, but mm-hmm. to like read these books and actually, you know, really take time with them, like build a community and have a club mm-hmm. where we don't just read the book 
but we discuss it and mm-hmm. we, you know, debate different ideas and teachings and really like get, dig into it, you know, mm-hmm. and to, like, mm-hmm. to take that time to really understand the philosophy and the mental aspect of yoga and to then like bring that into our teachings and our work. I feel like that's something we all can do. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like, I don't even recommend doing that alone, you know? Yeah. It's so helpful to have a teacher with you and helping you. And, yeah. uh, and like you said, a, a community of people, even, even better. Um, yeah. And I noticed so many teachers teaching things like this online these days. It's like, it used to be kind of few and far between to find workshops like this, because I felt like you kind of had to do a teacher training to, that's kind of why I did a teacher training. I wanted to know more about more than just the physical, but now I feel like you can really get specific focused online groups that that get together. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, you were talking earlier, like, what do we do about just being bombarded with all this social media and screen time? And one thing that I started, I think just a couple months ago, is an online community where we meet every two weeks, every other Sunday. And we discuss, you know, different aspects of the philosophy and different practices. And I feel like that has been so fantastic. Again, I don't know if I did this more for myself or for Uh others, but it's it's been great, I I think, for us all to meet live, you know, even if it's behind a screen, Mm -hmm. to actually meet live and have a Mm -hmm. back and forth discussion. And... uh, So do you do, you assign a reading like for that two weeks and then kind of like a book club and then you meet and discuss? You know, this one we're at, we're, it's more, we do a practice and like we'll spend half a few of the, a little bit of the time doing a practice, just like a short meditation or or mantra or visualization. And then we'll spend the rest of the time actually talking about the practice, what our experiences were questions, debates, that kind of thing. Um, So that's what this one is. But I'm actually starting a book club where we will do what you're saying is take a piece of the reading and then discuss it. I love that. And and take our time. Like we might take months to read the Gita, you know. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just taking a a simple translation and and going into the philosophy in that way. Perfect. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's been like that's been the solve for me and the balance for me between all this screen time. That's just where you're alone <laughs> versus mm-hmm. when you're actually interacting and sharing mm-hmm. in real time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If I can just say one more thing, um, sure. Just with these trends, you know, these days, it's it's. I feel like we have 
become so comfortable, like pointing our fingers at other people. I see this in the mainstream world and starting to happen within yoga too. And, you know, the teachings of yoga, they really are encouraging us to turn our gaze inwards. And it's so easy to talk about how many things are wrong in the world, you know, but it's much more difficult and much more courageous to go inside and look at what are the wounds in my own being and what are the weaknesses in my own mind and to really see them and to understand them and to heal, you know, and um, all of this focus on the outer world, it's like, it's good and it's important. And like you said, we have systems that need to be changed, but especially as yogis, we have to remember to turn some of our attention inwards and really work on ourselves and that inner mm -hmm. journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. I think that, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think one of the things that you point out really well is that I'm actually paraphrasing, okay. completely interpreting what you say, but just like when you are kind of in the right mindset, in the right heart space with yourself, and you're kind of aware of your own triggers and aware of your own places that need shoring up and support when you are then kind of out in the world, really you have a better shot at people listening to you. If you come from this place of like trying to communicate and trying to connect and, and, and being compassionate, mm -hmm. that, that was a message that I took away from what you said. It's like, this is the message of yoga. And so this is like embodying the teachings and embodying the essence of yoga is really what's going to create the change that we want to see. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to simple oversimplify things, but that was just one, one, something that I, I drew from what you wrote. Yeah. I think a, a lot, well, like when we are in that hard space, we start, we get less divisive, you know, we start to recognize, like we start to find our common ground that, yeah, we have totally different backgrounds and cultures, but we all want to be happy and we all want to have freedom from pain and we all feel the same array of emotions. And so to find our common ground and to, you know, find that humility that we're not that different. And then even, you know, with this, you were asking about solutions to cultural appropriation you know, it just to be for all of us to be more inclusive and expansive, and myself included, and to recognize that I also I can deepen my understanding of the philosophy of yoga, I can deepen my understanding of love, and unity and healing. So for us to come together and find our common ground and create these communities where we're working together to deepen our practice and our understanding. And it's mm -hmm. just, it's less like me versus you, us versus them. It's like, we're all in mm -hmm. this together. We all can deepen our practice and mm -hmm. our love, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. And really, yeah, I'm with you. I'm on board. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that I, I missed um, or anything else you want to, you want to mention? I uh, I think, you know, this has been great. I could talk forever, but I feel like 
we we hit some really good good ground here. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for for being here today, Rima. I really appreciate connecting with you. Thanks for sharing with everyone. Same. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I will put links to Rima's essay as well as her programs and her offerings on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 250. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it on social media. Please share it with your friends or family. And if you haven't already, please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. Remember to always take deep breaths when you are driving and when you are responding to someone on the internet. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Lokasamasthasukino.